everybody, welcome to another episode of Conversations with Tom. I am here with somebody who I am so obsessed with. I know I say this every time, uh, but hopefully in my consistency, people will see just how true that is. Ryan Holiday, welcome to the show, man. Thanks so much. It's uh, it's always awesome to talk. I feel like this is the only time that we end up talking. Yeah, it's kind of sad, like especially now in this world where everybody's getting isolated. Um, I am deeply distressed that we're not actually sharing space while we record this, as this has always been a, a great excuse. This is, I think, the third time, fourth time? Like you've been Might on... Be fourth. Yeah, I don't remember. So it is... Um, it's always been a great excuse for us to to come together and actually be in a space. So very sad that this one is virtual, but super excited to get into some of the cool things that you've been working on with your new book, Lives of the Stoics. And I want to immediately put it into context of what's going on right now. So I've yeah. been I've been shaken by what I'll say I'll round to the sort of culture wars, which I yeah. never, ever thought that I would think about or spend any time. I'm like, there are people smarter than I that, that should be engaged. And then I started to feel like a coward because part of why I was remaining silent as I saw the sort of what I will call a madness reaching a crescendo was I was doing it for business reasons. I thought, I'll just keep my head down right. and like, you know, keep doing my thing. And I thought, fuck, if I come out and start telling people sort of where I'm at, what I'm thinking through, it could be bad for business. And so that propelled me to start talking about it because I didn't like the way that it made me feel like a coward. And as I was reading Lives of the Stoics, um, it seemed to have immediate implications. How do you think the Stoics would interpret this, or even you having sort of become a Stoic, if I may, uh, interpret all this. I, I, I'm really glad you said that because it's it's something I struggle with too. Like uh, on the one hand, as someone who makes work, you're trying to make work for as many people as possible. Not not just like for financial reasons, but the, the whole point of having something to say is that you want people to hear it. And then so there's this kind of tension between, well, if I talk about these safe things, I'll reach as many people as possible. And then over here, there's like this unpleasant issue. And then over here, there's perhaps this, you know, politically divisive issue. And if I touch either one, I'm going to either turn people off or I'm going to get a bunch of nasty emails about it. And so there's this sort of dilemma. I think we fantasize that it would be wonderful to kind of be above it all. Like, oh, I'm just this kind of personality. I'm just kind of uh, you know, I just focus on this. Like for me, I'd be like, oh, I, I just talk about ancient philosophy. Therefore, like it's not relevant to what's happening right now. And that I think what I've taken from the Stokes, like I think my early writing about the Stokes, I was I was primarily looking at at these things the way you do, which is like, how does it make you better? How does it make you more resilient? How does it make you smarter, better, stronger, faster? And I think the more you study the, the, the true greats, you realize that they weren't just trying to get six pack abs or to make a few million dollars. Like the whole point was to have as much to go to the point of your show, to have as much impact as possible. And, and by impact, they, they weren't just thinking about sort of external, you know, superficial success, but like really making a difference in the world. And so as I've, as I've gone deeper and deeper into stoicism, you realize like, oh, these people were deeply politically and culturally engaged. And I got an email from someone yesterday. They were like, how dare you talk about politics? Like, and they said, you know, what would Seneca, what would Marcus Aurelius think about what you were saying? 
And and look, I I I hadn't even said anything sort of super political, but I said, you know, I I, I got a little upset and I responded. And I was like, what would Seneca the senator, Cato the senator, Marcus Aurelius the emperor, you know, uh, Rutilius Rufus the 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 governor, uh, uh, Junius Rusticus the mayor, you know, Diogenes and 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 um, Antipater the diplomats, like. What would they think about me making a political statement? I mean, they would they would be totally fine with it. And I think this is the other part that we're losing culturally. Even if they disagreed with my political statement, they wouldn't get butthurt about it because they understand that people have differing opinions and it's in the discussion about these things that that progress is made. So I'm, I'm struggling with that myself. And I think where I've gotten with it is like, I'm going to say what I think and feel. And if people don't like it, that's not my problem. You know what I mean? Uh, I, I'm I'm not going to, you know, uh, I, I the, the, the response that I got the other night was from someone who responds. I, I send out this this email every month where I recommend books. And they said, why is your opinion in this? And I said, this entire email is my opinion. <laughs> that is literally what it is based on. I'm not going to keep my opinion out of it because you are too sensitive to hear that opinion. Yeah, that that is a question I find very bizarre. So if you were a journalist and your job was to sort of present facts to let people know what was going on, I could understand, although journalism obviously um, has morphed into something different and, and I won't even make a sure. judgment on whether it's good or bad. It just seems to have become very different than maybe where it was 20 or 30 years ago. And the like doing a show like this, what the value that I get out of watching shows like this is that people are helping me think through a problem. And right. if they aren't presenting how they're processing it, then it becomes harder for me to make sense of my own world. And so, you know, the, the Weinstein brothers, Yes, the Weinstein brothers um, will talk a lot about the sense-making apparatus. And, yes. you know, podcasts have largely become a part of that. And it's like, look, I'm I'm going to walk you through how I'm thinking through it. Not every, like, there are people way smarter than me. Um, and by all means, if you resonate with where they're at and how they're going through it, then seek them out. Um, my thing is for a certain type of person that thinks in a certain way, I might by um, showing how I process something might be able to add some benefit. And also, I, there's this quote I heard, and I forget who said it, but I, I speak not so that I can be understood, but so that I can understand. And I, a lot of the dialogue is just me trying to figure out what the fuck do I actually think? Like, this shit is crazy. But sure. in, in reading your um, most recent book, one of the notes that I took was, that your um, reading on stoicism, which I resonate with very, very much, and it's what you just went through, but um, said maybe slightly different, is that stoicism is essentially a philosophy of action and not a philosophy of talk. And yes. to me, it's like when when I get on that vein, like I want to jump, grab things, bite them, scream, yell so that people understand. Like to me, it's that utility. Utility is what matters. And getting people thinking about the world in a way, solely to inform how you act. Like the only thing I care about is your behaviors, the things you sure. actually do. And so when I think about um, people sort of pontificating in a realm of above the realities of the world, um, theoretical notions, it's not very interesting. Like I wanna know what does this look like down in the mud? 
Well, so, so two things pop up to me. So one, you know, in the ancient world, and this this is something I talk a little bit in the book, the, the sort of the two rival schools were the Epicureans and the Stoics. And in truth, the Epic, uh, you know, despite what the word Stoic means and Epicurean means, this, that's not what the philosophies were about. In fact, the philosophies were very, very similar. But the, the, the sort of core methodology of the Epicureans was they sort of they retreated to what was known as the garden. That was this sort of beautiful compound that Epicurus had. And they kind of focused on their their own internal self-development. They, they went it's like they left it almost like a monk going into a monastery. They went there. They looked inward. They improved themselves. And they said, the world is broken. The world is dysfunctional. People suck. I'm not going to get involved in that. And the Stoics said, we agree with all that, but we feel obligated to contribute, to play a role, to make a difference. And so like uh, Seneca sort of surmising the difference between the schools, says, you know, Epicurus says, in, you know, if you can, in, like he basically says, unless it's an emergency, don't get involved in politics. And uh, Z, he's saying, Zeno says, uh, unless there's an emergency exemption, you have to be involved in politics. And so I don't think that just means like, you know, you should be watching Fox News or MSNBC and following these meaningless squabbles over these tiny policy issues. But the idea that that democracy is this thing that just happens and you just live in it is ridiculous. Like it's a it's a thing that requires participation from everyone, not just voting, but but the to say like, hey, you know, like citizens are complicit in what their governments do because the government's power is derived from the people's consent. And so if you, you know, if, if you see this happening outside your door, you see this happening on social media and you decide, well, I'm not going to get involved. That that's not me. Uh, I think you're you're falling down on the job. You're not doing your duty. And I think the other thing I struggle with, and I'd be curious your thoughts, I, I'm I'm on sort of like a, a text thread with some authors I know. And one of them was saying, you know, like, hey, you know what? And I won't say what party he was talking about, but he said, hey, you know, what causes are you donating to this year uh, as part of the election? And and I sort of replied and these are all good guys. So I'm not like throwing them under the bus or anything. But I said, like, guys, like the last election was not actually decided by money. Actually, the candidate that won raised less money than the candidate that lost. So um, but what did happen is a lot of people had opinions that they didn't talk about because they thought either the result was a foregone conclusion or they thought it wasn't their place or they didn't want to be attacked by trolls or whatever it was. I was like, all of you guys have enormous platforms. And yet I've seen you say nothing about any of these issues like the place for people who are thought leaders or contributors or sense makers, as you said, is to help people walk through that process. And and that's been an interesting thing I've experienced. It's like, you know, people follow me because I'm good at breaking down history, because I understand life and people and and all this stuff. And then the second I say anything about, you know, somebody's character who holds an elected office, suddenly I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. It's like, Literally, this is what I do. This is like I am a world class. I'm not saying you should just absorb my opinions because they're my opinions, but like I'm pretty good at sizing these things up and seeing where they go. And suddenly, because 
it now challenges the identity that you picked up from your parents and their political party. You know, I'm a I'm a socialist or something. It's ridiculous Mm. that that's the one of the things I think is most important to look at. And when I think about identity politics, what freaks me out is a how enticing it is to be on a team. Um, because once you're on a team, as long as you're spouting the party line, your team is always going to have your back. The problem is when, when you do that, it's the same fear that I have around just dogma in general, that you're no longer open to new information. And this is all predicated on a belief I have that your current belief set, your current skill set has already taken you as far as it's going to take you. And that to advance, you must advance. You must actually improve. You must learn something new, have a breakthrough, gain a new skill, something that's going to allow you to go farther than where you already are. And so if you allow this stuff to to crystallize into we think this way, they think this way. And that's the very thing that puts us in a camp. So if I unless I want to lose my belonging, which, of course, we all have this very intense desire to belong, unless I want to lose my belonging, I just have to take the good with the bad. Right. And right. That's where I get scared is like now now we're going to pathologize. Now we're going to sure. we're going to really break. And once you're no longer listening, once you're no longer trying to go, oh, where am I wrong? I know I'm wrong somewhere. So where am I wrong? And when you have both camps saying, where am I wrong? And trying to find a better, more utilitarian, something that's useful approach to life, um, then this it starts to get really weird when they don't have that. So as you look at what's going on now, how do you think about that? Like, is there do you think it's a problem that people are adopting identity politics for the reasons I just laid out? Um, yeah. And if so, like, what's the way out? Yeah, I, th- I think, uh, you know, Paul Graham talks about the more identities you have, the more stupid you are. You know, like if you say, like, I am blank, you've now handed over a set of beliefs to this like institution or party or group of people instead of asking yourself what you think about each thing. Right. And, you know, the people that I admire have, you know, a a bunch of independent beliefs about different things. And, you know, maybe they're liberal on some issues and conservatives on other issues. And sometimes they vote for this party and sometimes they vote for that party. Like and the weird thing about where we are right now politically is that, like, I think so much of the issues we're having are not even political. Right. Like, um, you know, I'm going to say that the, the dangerous name, uh, it's probably going to piss people off. I'm not opposed to Donald Trump because he's a Republican. I'm opposed to Donald Trump because he's a fucking moron and a bad person. Do you know what I mean? Like, like and, and I, I think that can be said zooming way out. If, if he was a character in a Shakespeare play, he would be the villain. You know, if he was like. I was I was uh, I live on a dirt road in Texas, just as an example, and and we can get off politics anytime you want. So cut me off if you think this is not where you want to go. But I live on a dirt road and all the neighbors have to chip in and work on this dirt road. Right. And and now I've been I've been fortunate. Enough, I've advised people in Washington. I've been to Washington. I've, I've talked to business people that know Donald Trump. Everything I know about Donald Trump says like, and I got this great neighbor who does most of the work on the road. And I watched him put up this big Donald Trump flag the other day. I was like, dude, you tirelessly work on this road. It's not your responsibility. No one pays you to do it. You're being a good neighbor, a good person. You are you you are solving a collective action problem. Donald Trump is the kind of person that doesn't pay his bills, that stiffs contractors, 
that that always asks what's in it for me, so on and so forth. If he lived on this road, he would be the one doing the most damage to the road and helping out everyone else the least amount. Right. And by the way, probably complaining about it the most. And so my point is, it's not a political issue. It's an issue fundamentally of character. And, and I think you can look at all these other these other things, whether it's looting in the streets or whether it's police brutality or whether it's, you know, income inequality. These are not really political issues. These are do you feel obligated to help other human beings? Right. Does it hurt you inside when you see other people are hurting? Now, there's lots of different ways to solve that. But the point is, I think where we're really struggling, not just in America, but in the world is agreeing that other people matter and that we should care about those people like the mask thing to me is such a great example of this like or let's let's even do that uh, college kids partying on campus right now uh it's fun what that fundamentally at the root of that is an inability to understand how your actions affect other people and i think we're really struggling with that as a society and 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 the human being, the human species have always struggled with this. But what philosophy is there for, what the four virtues of Stoicism, for example, are there for, is to help walk you through why you can't give in to those impulses and why you have to create a framework that lays out your sort of duties and obligations and ethics as a human being. Otherwise, the whole thing falls apart, you know. And I think we're looking at a system right now that's falling apart because people fundamentally don't understand how, you know, their actions impact other people. And that's, that's where we are. You know what I mean? I do. It's interesting as you were talking, um, to the thing that as I've gone into this and really looked at it, how the fuck did we end up here? Like I had no sense. And this is just like when Lisa got sick with a microbiome issue. I didn't even know what the microbiome was. And then one day the microbiome changed her life for sure. And so as I look at this and I start thinking about, you know, um, like what's going on and what exactly happened. And I start doing my own research and looking into, um, you know, what, what is this sort of frame of reference from which people are coming at this? Um, I began to realize that we've hit some sort of threshold event. And just like with Lisa's microbiome, where it was like all of a sudden there was this radical change in her life and then by proxy my own life. And I realized, wait a second, the microbiome exists and she had been having problem, 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 but none of it spilled over into it actually being something she could notice. And then all of a sudden it hits a tipping point, a threshold moment and boom, it explodes everywhere. And that that's what has happened to me. So now I'm having that same moment of where I'm going, what what is the corollary of the microbiome in this moment? What is it about the way that people are thinking? Because what I see is, okay, you've got identity politics getting on a team. Okay, that seems like it's going to lead to competing versus cooperating. That seems like an inherent problem. And then looking at what the actual teams are. So one, we've lost this idea of that the magic is in the friction between the two sides. And sure. when people hear me talk about this, one of the complaints I get is, that, you know, I'm saying that humans fall into a binary camp. I'm not saying that. I think human, so let me define where the friction is. The friction is between people who their primary virtue is what you just laid out, which is compassion, worrying about other people. Then on the other side, and this is, this is just from an evolutionary standpoint. Then on the other side, you have people that say, don't take advantage of me. Okay. So you've got these two camps. And sure. when you look at it from an evolutionary, through an evolutionary lens, you realize you need both. 
You don't want to leave the members of your tribe dying on the fucking streets. And at the same time, that if you just give, 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 make sure everybody's safe, you get the person who's parasitic. And then just like game theory tells you that the parasitic nature will bloom until there's a punishment against it. And you so need an equilibrium. I think what you're talking about is equilibrium. And 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 so of the, the, the four stoic virtues are courage, uh, justice, wisdom. But the key virtue in the ancient world is moderation. Right. And Aristotle talks about this. Moderation idea is of, one of the four virtues. Yeah. It, moderation, self-discipline. It's sort of a temperance is the other is the other rendering. But Aristotle says says that all virtues are a midpoint between two vices, right? And I think that's an important way to think about the friction you're talking about. So he's like, you know, you have you have fear on one hand or cowardice, and then you have recklessness. In the middle is courage, right? In the in the you know, uh, it's good to be generous, but if you're uh, or, sorry, it's not good to be greedy. But if you're overly generous, you'll give everything away. So actually, generosity is somewhere sort of right in the middle, right? And I think one of the things I think we're losing, and, and I'm actually encouraged, again, I don't agree with a lot of his politics, but I think it says something about where we are politically that Joe Biden is painted as a radical leftist by the right. And then by the left, he's despised for being a moderate, right? Like moderation is a good thing, right? Like it's good. He, he's not radical on either side. And that's actually what you need, especially in the American system. And and moderates, I mean, the, the moderates of a Mitt Romney is just as important as the moderation of a Joe Biden. You need uh, someone who understands that the entire American system is predicated on the fact that almost never will one side get a majority or let alone a supermajority that you need to pass legislation. And so what is required is coalitions and compromises, right? And so the problem is when one side starts to be very immoderate, the other side has to be more immoderate too because they don't want to compromise. You know what I mean? It's, so it's getting further and further and further. And then the, what the middle suddenly looks more and more radical, right? And I think we have this, to me, moderation is a key virtue of life. You don't need to be you, you know, you, you don't need to have the most out of everyone. You just need to have enough for you. Right. And and so I think we're, we're losing just that political virtue of moderation, which is like, I'm pretty sure I know what the right solution is, but I'm not going to be so conceited or egotistical to think that I know everything and that I need to dominate the other side. Like we're we're entering a political system where one side thinks they need to own the other side and got to dunk on these, these bitches, man. Exactly. Dunking is the worst political trend you can imagine. It's like, I think, you know, even even like how we've come to see the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court is supposed to be an impartial body of of, of legal experts who, you know, consult the Constitution and help us solve our most vexing legal questions. The idea isn't you win enough elections, you stack the judiciary, then you ram legislation through. And then because you've bought the referees, the other side is screwed when a case become comes before the Supreme Court. You know, like like so even you see this now, the sides go, are justices. And it's like, no, the justices belong to everyone. And so, you know, it's just a it's a weird system where we've lost that moderating impulse of like, well, I'm going to take the best of this one and the best of this one, I'm going to come together with a solution that kind of pleases everyone. And then we're going to make progress from there. Yeah. So 
bringing it to something you articulated incredibly well in Lives of the Stoics, you talk about this notion of preferred indifference. Yeah. And I that to me was very compelling and that they got into this argument of, and I, I love this quote, and I think this quote is fucking profound, which is nothing is either good or bad, but thinking makes it, makes it so. And and forgive me, I forget some of the, the guy's names, but there was one guy who was like, no, 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 nothing is good or bad, truly. Like, don't even waste time thinking about it, like, and your life will be happier for it, whether you are sick, whether you're healthy, you're just indifferent to it all. And it becomes yeah. a sort of breaking point, and you, you have this huge falling out in the stoic camp over, like, this idea of, look, there are some things we just fucking prefer, like being right. healthy. Sure, there are moments where being healthy could get you sent off to war. And so it would have been better to be sick in that moment because then you don't end up dying in war. Right. Yes, but Jesus, like on balance, you're we all prefer to be healthy. And that that notion of like, can we just fucking decide what we actually want? Because my thing is this, I'm not left or right. I am goal oriented. So yes. What the fuck is our goal? Like the moment we agree on what our goal is, now everybody's idea is just a test. I'm running an experiment. And does this left experiment work? Does the right experiment? Did it, did it fucking move us closer? Yes or no? And if it doesn't, I don't give a shit whose team it was, whose idea it was. I have a goal, which I can fucking articulate. And we're now in a place where I feel like we can't even, not only can we not agree on the goal, nobody's even attempting to articulate the goal. I think I think that's right. And that that concept of preferred indifference to me in, it encapsulates a really great problem in philosophy and in politics, which is that we get so convinced with like extrapolating things out to their their natural logic that we end up in fantasy land that's not good for anyone. Right. So, yeah, one of the early Stokes was like, there is no good or bad. It's all in our heads. Uh, or or that only good is good and only bad is bad and there's no gray area. And and you end up kind of in this almost like religious dogmatic point of view. And that and and Seneca sort of cuts through this the the this knot and he just goes like, look, guys, it's probably better to be tall than short most of the time. It's probably better to be rich than poor most of the time. And he's saying that that's not he's he's saying I'm not saying if you're poor, your life sucks and you can't find happiness um, or that you can't do anything about it. He's just saying that generally this is what we'll prefer. And and he's saying a stoic is going to try to make the most good out of whatever it's born. You know, like he's saying, like, look, like a stoic would rather have both eyes. But if they lose one of their eyes in battle, they're not going to be like life is meaningless. Like I should you know, what's the use of continuing? And so so this idea of preferred indifference to me is great. It's like, look, I I'm glad that I've been successful, um, but I'm I'm also and, and I'm going to enjoy the fruits of that while I can. But I'm also not going to become so dependent on it that um, that uh, th that the thought of losing it racks me with anxiety or makes me do unethical things in order to maintain it. So uh, I, the Stokes are trying to get to a place of sort of independence. And I think that's really important. But independence but from what? Independence from from externals. Right. So that like the happiness and when he's saying preferred indifference, I think he's meaning like that, that, hey, if it if it if you wake up today and it's raining, here's your plan for a rainy day. And if you wake up and it's sunny and beautiful, here's a plan for a sunny day. But you don't wake up and the weather determines the quality of your day, you know, and and I think that that's a thing a lot of people struggle with. And and I think politically, 
look, obviously, if you're if you lean uh, right or left, you hope that your party is in power. But like you should also get to a place where you're like, here's what the line is. Right. And so that I would much rather have someone I disagree with. Like I think about this in business, like, look, would you rather the CEO of the company you work for generally agree with your vision for the company and support exactly the direction that you want to go? Yes. You also, though, you need to have someone who's ethical, who's competent, who's reliable, you know, who who's who's, you know, um, does all the things you need in a leader that are not really political or directional in any way. You know what I mean? Like you I do. I'm going to I'm going to jump in here and say that the I think this is the first step on a slippery slope to where we're at now. What I would say is going back to everything should be an echo of your goal. So I literally lived what you're talking about in business where I had ideas. They ended up being bad ideas. It was very emotionally gratifying to have my ideas be the one that the CEO took and moved with. And then we hit a day where I knew I was arguing for an idea that was bad. But for ego reasons, I needed to be right. I just needed that the the salve of like, okay, finally, I'm not stupid. Like I've, I've got something working for me. And even if it's just being able to win the argument, that alone made me feel smart. But there was a voice in my head screaming in the middle of my convincing arguments, this will move you away from a successful company. And so I have this moment of crisis around what the fuck is my actual goal? What do I want? Right. Just be honest. Don't fucking bullshit. This is a private moment. You and yourself, just be honest about what you actually want so you can move through the world in a way that actually moves you towards your goals. And I realized I had these two competing goals. I wanted to feel smart meaning even if I drive the company into the ground and then I wanted to be successful and they they were actually coming into competition. And so I had to figure out like a way to tease those out. So that's why I don't think people need to, they need to be very tense if they're saying to themselves, I would generally like the country or the company to be run with the people that see the world my way. You should want the people running the country that have the same goal and that are accurate in their ability to assess what's moving you towards that goal. Now that I'll get behind all day, left, right, center, up, down, you know, whatever the qualifications of the CEO, I don't give a shit. And this is why, like in my own company, I'm always telling people, I will not, I'm not capable. I don't have enough time and I'm not intelligent enough to think of all the right ideas to move this company forward. So I promise you one thing, I'm a slave to what moves us towards our goal. So here's our goal. It's both exciting and honorable to get to your point about virtues and all that. So this is something that uplifts not only myself and you guys, but humanity in general. Okay, so it's exciting and it's honorable. Now, I'm going to be beholden to that. So whoever's got the right idea, if you think I'm doing something stupid, I want you to say the words, I think this is stupid. Don't try to be nice. Don't try to be kind. Just fucking tell me the truth. Because now we can battle the ideas. And if we can think through them and not have to actually test it, great. If we can't, then and it seems plausible, then we'll run that test. Now, that may, oh God, I really hope like that people hear the distinction between those because I'm not trying to split hairs. That to me is like, is 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 the first step in a direction either leaning into the i have my worldview my worldview is right and therefore i want people to crystallize around my worldview and i'm going to vote for people that that are there versus what's your goal and who's going to help actually get you towards that goal now if you have a a pathologized goal that is fucking sinister or or ignorant and will actually lead to our downfall and you just can't If you want a fighting chance against the competition, you need to be using the best technology and platforms in the world 
like Shopify. For whatever and wherever you want to sell, from launching to going international, Shopify is the global commerce platform that will help you grow at every stage of your business. Shopify is your all-in-one platform to quickly and efficiently take your business to the next level. Now, I love everything about Shopify because it makes it so easy for you to start, run, and grow your business. It didn't used to be this easy. I'm telling you, back in the day, it was a lot harder. I am so jealous. Shopify powers more than 10% of all U.S. e-commerce because businesses that want to grow quickly and efficiently choose Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash impact, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash impact now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash impact. If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with ebay motors brake kits led headlights exhaust kits turbochargers bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time or your money back plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply see it that that's a whole nother can of worms well, so so the Stoics had this expression, character is fate. And and so my point is, I'm saying, obviously, you want someone to be aligned with your goals. But I would also be okay being led by or working for someone who maybe we actually do have different goals, as provided I get to do my sort of basic thing. But what I'm never going to do or never want to be in a position, and I've been in this position before, where you're working for someone who actually maybe you do share a goal but but fundamentally, they're uh, they're flawed as far as character goes or ethics go or they treat people poorly or they have some vice or addiction or, or flaw that it doesn't matter how talented you are. It doesn't matter how good the goal is or even how good the plan to get to the goal is. Eventually, that person will destroy themselves and you and the organization. And so. You know, I think we see this in business all the time and business is always less loaded. You'll have the right company, the right vision, everything, but they still fail. Why do they fail? It's because some the, there was something culturally flawed in the organization that's usually stemming from the leader. So I think what and this is something the Stoics talk about over and over and over again, that like, look at the, they're like the reason that that a leader needs to study philosophy is that philosophy is about the development of character and that no amount of competence can make up for a deficiency in character. And, and whether you're looking at, you know, companies going into the financial crisis or you're looking at Enron or you're looking even at Uber, where Uber was this great company, but they'd sort of created a win at all costs culture that eventually meant that they were sleeping on a sexual harassment issue and some legal issues and a whole bunch of things that were eventually a ticking time bomb that ended up pushing the founder out of the company. And, you know, WeWork's probably another great example of this. 
you, you have to ultimately think about the, the, the pathology of the person in charge, or if you are in charge, the pathology that's motivating you, or, you know, and this is why I wrote ego is the enemy. It, again, it doesn't matter how brilliant you are, how talented you are, how right you are. Ego will eventually tear your team organization, you know, uh, uh, your, your business apart because it's fundamentally a, a bad form. It's a corruptive, corrosive fuel. And I think, you know, even if the Republicans or the Democrats, to bring this back to politics, are right, if they're if they're pursuing a strategy because its primary purpose is to wrestle power from the other side or to dominate or to shove it down somebody's throats, that's a that's a bad reason for doing a good thing. And it will eventually come back to haunt them if they're doing it because it fundamentally helps the most people. Then, you know, uh, again, I'd rather I'd rather live under a regime that's passing laws or policies that I disagree with, but I think are being done for good reasons than, you know, my fantasy country, but that is, you know, a shield or a, uh, an excuse for some ominous, you know, bad actor. Ooh, okay, so th this is really fucking interesting. So um, I am way into this idea that philosophy is about developing character. I think that character is absolutely critical because to me, what you're pointing at with, um, say, Uber you've got somebody who's playing a finite game versus an infinite yes. game. So in a finite game, there actually is a finish line to cross and cool, okay, just ignore the sexual harassment shit, whatever. Ah, we finally got across the finish line and, and now we're good. Versus if you realize this is an infinite game, this is something, there is no finish line. There is only like, what are you trying to become? What does that journey look like? And all of us are, you know, lives will get cut short before the sort of finish line of, sure. you know, the universe dies a death, you know, of there's no more energy left in the system and it all collapses down on itself. Um, so that like when you, if you make the the right distinction of this is an infinite game. My goal is to have character. And by the way, back to my obsession about utility, to have character because in a group of humans, that is the thing that you need to not wake up one day with a knife in your fucking back. And right. that when when you're not just thinking about yourself, but you're thinking about other people, and I think it actually is critical that you also think about yourself. You're trying to empower yourself, become a total fucking badass. That's my language, I get that. But like, you're trying to make the most of yourself but all the while not doing it at the expense of the group. And if you do those things, so you're building character through philosophy, you are playing the infinite game, but you also are taking a tremendous amount of personal responsibility and saying like, the systems can't do this for me. I must do it for myself. Going back to your idea of living in a democracy, you don't just get to roll up and be like, yo, this democracy is rad. Glad I get to take advantage of it. It's like you are part of the people by which the government is able to rule. So getting getting in that headspace and then saying okay well if i've got somebody that is there so i'll i'll point to mao's china and and i will say i'm i am at the edge of what i understand and so nobody nobody need think that they have to chastise me in order to get me to dig farther into this like sure. this is a timestamp right of where i'm at in in discovering all this going back to the whole culture wars and all that to me was is the microbiome i'm just now beginning to learn it even exists and that i need to pay attention to it because it actually has things in my life but i i will say that on paper like what they were trying to do sounded pretty cool. Like I get how people go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like this should be how we should approach things. And yet the 
the Cultural Revolution of Mao's China ended up killing ungodly number of millions of people, right? So he may have killed them with the best of intentions, but like, I still don't give him a pass. I'm like, of course. It, it's one of those things that you can just say, certainly now, maybe he didn't have the, the historical knowledge to be able to say, oh, I get where this goes. It's like, you you may not want to extrapolate into Candyland, but you do want to extrapolate enough to be like, where does this go? Even if I have good intentions, does this end somewhere well? No, I mean, look, they, as they say, the road the road to hell is paid with good intentions. And, and when you look at a lot of those utopian experiments, at the core of them is one of fundamental denial of what Robert Greene would call human nature, right? A, a, a violation of all the laws of human nature. It's it's projecting uh, an idea of the world rather than reflecting back what the world is. And, and, and then there is also a stridency and a certainty that that like, you know, Mao's China fails as as all totalitarian regimes eventually fail because um they cannot brook dissent or debate and they have to eradicate their enemies because, you know, they fundamentally don't have an answer for the enemies. I, I think to, to go back to this idea of character, and it's, I, I'm really glad you compared it to an infinite game. I wrote that down. Character is what you need for the infinite game of life. And, you know, the, if we look at like religion, like Christianity, Christianity is basically saying like, Look, you need to have good you need to have good character. You need to treat people well. Don't sin. Don't do this and that. And they're and they're saying this basically. They're like because Jesus says, right? They're saying like if you don't, you'll go to hell, right? And that and and that's a convincing argument, right? I get that. Um, as someone uh, who I, I think I I tend to to focus more on the philosophical things. So philosophy is sort of my guide. What what the Stoics are saying is they're saying look, character. And being a good person and and doing all this, you're not doing it because there's some reward at the end. You're doing it be, or a punishment at the end. They're saying if you <clears throat> if you live without character, you will live in hell. Your life will become a form of hell. And so I think that's something that <clears throat> we don't talk about enough. And that's one of my the things I love about Marcus Aurelius. You know, here you have this guy with absolute power. And so he, he sort of he suddenly becomes king and he kind of looks around and <clears throat> we have this idea. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. He's like, what what happened to all the people who sat in this chair before me? Why did they why did they become so evil and bad? And, and how did that happen? And and was it worth it? You know, was it worth it to be Alexander the Great or whomever? And he, he basically sort of realizes like these guys weren't having a good time, that it wasn't it, it's. To be insatiable, to have no ethical bounds for for your behavior, to be entirely you know focused on the self, to be obsessed and and validated only by winning, you know, to have no cause that you truly are committed to other than your own advancement. He basically is saying like, first off, all these people died just like everyone else, right? And then he's saying. Actually, it was a miserable, lonely, awful way to live. And, and so I think we need to we the the reward for virtue is the virtuous life. Right. Like and, and the, the reward for vice, you know, her, the, the, they call this the sort of the choice of Hercules. The decision to take the easy road seems easy, but in the end, it's actually the worst, miserable, most hard and difficult road. And the, the road of virtue is more challenging 
and there's less immediate rewards, but it's ultimately much more fulfilling and 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 peaceful and happy and 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 all of that. So I think you know we character is not just this thing you're doing because uh, somebody said you should do it. It's it's something you're doing. It's it's the best strategy. Yeah. So I love that. Let's talk about being insatiable. Let's talk about Zeno. You open the book, um, Lives of the Stoics, with Zeno. And it's a very interesting story. And it sums up, like, the one person in the book maybe that I resonated the most with was Zeno in that here you have this guy is very successful and then he loses everything. And in a fucking shipwreck. Like, it's crazy. Like, you realize this is some OG shit. They did not have insurance. There was no way to, like, easily get back in the game. And so this guy goes from, like, riding highs, doing great, and then poof, it's all gone. And now he's got a, like, one, one of the most, and I imagine it would have been even harder back then. And the story you tell about him, I think it was him that had to carry the lentil soup and yep. to, like, embarrass him because that's what poor people ate. And so that his fucking teacher made him, like, walk this whole city after he's lost everything. People are already basically making fun of him for being poor now. And now he's got to walk with, like, the thing that just shows he's fucking poor. And he smashes the thing and he's got, you know, this poor person soup all over him. And he's literally shaking, at least as, as you retell it. And... And I thought, okay, this is fucking interesting. He has this uh, sort of epiphany of like, okay, I can't invest in this. And I can't invest in being a rich person and the way that other people look at me into your idea of independence and breaking free of what other people think. So here's how I look at it. Now, I have chosen to value greatness. Not saying other people need to do it. I'm just saying it's something I have chosen to do, which in our the last time we talked, we differentiated between success and greatness. And yeah. I think success is sort of personally defined, like whatever makes you feel the way you want to feel, that's success. Greatness is like your name echoes through the annals of history, right? Just people are so blown away by what you accomplish. It becomes like this thing to aim at. So anyway, I dig that. I'm into it. But that's my like moment pre-shipwreck. But the good news is I'm constantly having shipwrecks. So I'm striving towards this thing and I'm building up, um, you know, whether it's esteem or accolade or whatever, but it's inevitable that I, I fuck up and I do something wrong and now I bounce back and, and I have truly embarrassed myself. And that's happened to me a thousand times. I mean, maybe that's an exaggeration, but it happens so often. So anyway, I think of these like, I probably think of them as, as, as two pedals or maybe yeah. two buckets that I can alternate between. So I'm like, I want to be insatiable. I want to actually value myself on pursuing greatness. Like, ah, not at all costs, because you're right. I always say I will do anything within my code of ethics to achieve my success. Now, that within my code of ethics thing is critically important. I think you would translate that as character. So yeah. there's this, I want to be a certain kind of person chasing this shit. But every time I fall, I go, ah, it's all good. I don't value myself for actually being that anyway. I only value the pursuit. Well, so here, here's what I would not push back on, but here's, here's a way to think about it. To me, greatness is a very elastic, flexible idea. And, and you know, uh, Zeno may have been great as a merchant and that may have been what he was called to be great at. And he was great at it in the moment. And then fortune intervenes and he loses everything. And then he becomes greatness in another form. So Epictetus, who's like, you know, all the Stoics talk about adversity, but but Epictetus is a slave for 30 years and he's horribly abused and he's broken. And like to be a slave in Rome is like, you know, you're you're as expendable as expendable can be. And you know, he, he has this line, he says, the podium and a prison are the same place. And what he means is that the podium, like where the emperor stands or a senator stands and then a prison, they're both 
opportunities for greatness, right? Like, so, so Marcus Aurelius is great because he happens to find himself the emperor of Rome and he's great because per his code of ethics, the power doesn't change him. He fights for the little guy, you know, he keeps Rome together. He heroically leads Rome through the, the Antonine plague, which is a 15 year pandemic, so on and so forth. But Epictetus is born as low as you can get in the Roman empire. And his greatness is that this does not break him. There's a scene where um, Epictetus's master grabs his leg and is like basically torturing his slave just for just for the pure sadistic pleasure of it. And he's twisting the leg and he's twisting the leg. And Epictetus just looks him in the eye and he says, you're going to break my leg. You're going to break my leg. Why are you doing this? You're going to break my leg. And then finally the leg snaps and he, and he just looks him in the eye and he says, I told you that was going to happen. Like that is that is fucking human greatness at a level that is actually to me more impressive than Marcus Aurelius leading, uh, you know, the troops in battle. It's great because it's purely self-contained and resolute and unbreakable and unbeatable and, and so on and so forth. So meaning I, I want you to go deeper on that, meaning okay. that he doesn't become emotional about it. It's, it's one. He's he's complete master. He's like that monk lighting himself on fire to to uh, protest the Vietnam War. He's transcended the limitations of his human of, of his human form. But I think more importantly, what the only thing he's retained is his sheer defiance, you know, his his giant middle finger at the institution of slavery. Right. Like this experience, he walks he walks with a limp for the rest of his life. This could have made him bitter. He could have committed suicide. You know, he could have, uh, you know, become an addict. You know, he could have he could have done anything. And instead, he perseveres through and he says, you know, he's lameness or a limp. He says is an impediment to the body, but not to the spirit. And and so the, the point is, it's 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 Epictetus is great on the level of Nelson Mandela being great in his prison cell. Now, Nelson Mandela also after prison uh, then becomes great as a leader, you know, as a leader of a nation. But but the idea for the Stokes is that you can be great anywhere in anything and that greatness and, and excellent, like they would call us erite, uh, excellence is worth striving for. It's the only thing worth striving for. Just you want to get to a place where you don't conflate excellence solely with external accomplishments or fame or money, which is what a lot of people do. You know what I mean? Like, like I'll give you another, a more modern example. A few, a few years ago, they found that one of the actors on the Cosby show had, you know, sort of bounced out of acting and he was working at Trader Joe's and somebody snapped a picture of him and they were sort of making fun of him. And, but to me, like, the greatness of being like, well, I can't be an actor anymore. I got to provide for my family. I'm going to fucking work at Trader Joe's and I'm going to do a good job of it is also greatness because it contains all those same virtues that we're talking about. And so I think w when we're talking about being indifferent, what we're talking about is being indifferent to things that are not in our control. Like you could have, uh, you know, you could have invented or let, let's say you're a mathematician. You come up with some brilliant new theory that fundamentally changes mathematics. Um, but you die in obscurity and it's not until after your death that 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 your genius was discovered and appreciated. That doesn't to the Stoics, that doesn't make you any more or less great. The greatness was the act and the fact that society didn't understand is irrelevant.
I want to go back to Epictetus. I clearly do not know enough of his story. Um, one, I want to know, I want to go a little bit further into the, the why it was great that his leg was broken. And trust me, I, I agree with yeah. you. I want to actually articulate it. Um, and this notion of being able to transcend your emotions and to not give into them, not let them steer you. And I know you get pushback on that. Um, is, is that to you like the, when you say the podium and the prison are the same, what is the element of greatness that the Stoics would say you can cultivate? Is it the four virtues? Is it so, so uh, James Stockdale, Admiral Stockdale, is a fighter pilot in Vietnam. He and he's shot down over Vietnam. He, he's uh, the highest-ranking prisoner uh, in American prisoner taken prison uh, taken prisoner in in uh, the Vietnam War. And he had studied Epictetus in college. He'd gone back for a degree at Stanford, and he was introduced uh, by his professor to Epictetus. And he he had Epictetus like in his bunk on the ship, and. And as he's parachuting down, he's, he says to himself, I'm going to be in here for a long time. He says, I'm entering the world of Epictetus. And what he meant is that he's I leaving the world. Yeah, it's so it's it's an incredible story. One of the great heroes of the 20th century. Um, and and he he's parachuting down and he knows that he's you know far removed from his fighter jet. He's far removed from the great, powerful country that he's from. He's far removed from his family. He's far removed from all the things that he'd accumulated in his life up until this point. But he's saying, I'm going down here and there's gonna be other soldiers and my greatness, my duty is gonna be surviving this ordeal and doing the right thing inside this ordeal. And so he's actually, uh, first off, a little interesting trivia. I was was speaking to his son not not long ago and his son was like, actually my dad wasn't the highest ranking prisoner. He was the the highest ranking prisoner who stepped forward and assumed a leadership role. There were other prisoners that, for whatever reason, said, I don't want to take that heat. And he took it. Right. And from from basically day one, he institutes sort of a culture of defiance inside this prison. Like, for instance, they 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 sent their they're they're going to put him on national television to show that the prisoners are being uh, uh, treated well inside this prison, which is not the case. Right. And so, so they send him into this bathroom. They say, look, take a shower. Here's a razor. I want you to shave. And then, uh, we're going to put you on camera. He walks into the bathroom and he grabs the razor and he just cuts a giant gash across his forehead. So he can't be used for propaganda purposes. Um, and they come in and they're like, Oh my God, what have you done? Like what, you know, and 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 so they go to get some bandages and stuff. And he realizes that as hard as he tried, they're probably just going to be able to 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 bandage this cut and put him on television anyway. So he grabs a stool and he beats his own face in. Right. And and they come in and they say, uh, what are we going to tell the commander? And he says, you can tell the commander that I'm not fucking going downtown, you know, like. And, and so so this is this is how this is basically, you know, he's. He's imprisoned. He's shackled in irons. He's beaten. He's tortured. At one point, he realizes because he's become kind of famous, you know, because of his position there, that that they that they can't afford to lose him. Right. That like it it would it would be bad for for the the North Vietnamese if something were to happen to this. But they're still torturing the prisons prisoners anyway. So uh, one day he's 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 his hands are tied behind his back in this in this room, it's the only room with a window in the prison. 
And uh, he can see down below they're torturing uh, other American troops. And so he hobbles over in the chair, you know, like you can imagine him doing this. And he shatters the window and he grabs the shards of glass and he cuts his own wrists, knowing that uh, he's basically saying, like, if you don't stop this, I'm going to kill myself and you and you're going to have a world of hurt. So so. What I'm trying to say is that there are all different forms of greatness. Michael Jordan has a form of greatness. You know, Bill Gates or Warren Buffett have a form of greatness. Elon Musk has a form of greatness. But but there's also just the the core resiliency and determination and unbreakable spirit of the of the human race. That's also a form of greatness. And the Stoics wanted us to know that that we are descendant from those people, too, and that you know, like Seneca has this great line. He says, if they can force you to do it, you don't know how to die. And his point was, Jesus, his point was that the tyrant, uh, you know, doesn't actually have any control over you. Right. So, so, but this is where the stories are complicated. So Seneca says, if you, if they can force you to do something you don't want to do, it's because you don't know how to die. Right now that is, that is fucking badass. That's like a movie badass. Right. And yet, Seneca ends up working for several years as Nero's right-hand man, one of the horrendous tyrants of Rome's, you know, long history of horrendous tyrants. And so, again, what the Stoics present, I think, is, a, is an impossible ideal that, that maybe people manage to briefly touch for a few minutes. And ultimately, Seneca does end up dying. He dies uh, loosely implicated in a conspiracy to assassinate Nero. But the point is, it, sto- the greatness of Seneca uh, as a writer, to me, is actually less impressive than the other Stoics who resisted Nero more courageously. And, and, and you know, I would trade all of, of Seneca's beautiful writings for just one or two of those anecdotes of James Stockdale in that prison camp, because, you know, that's that's greatness indeed versus greatness in in words. Is James Stockdale still alive? He's not. He uh, he died in, I think, 2005 or 2006. He won the Medal of Honor. Uh, I've been lucky enough. I've spoken at the Stockdale Center at the the Naval Academy. But he is. So two things I, I think you'll love. So one, he's one of the great heroes of the of the of the Navy and, and of American history. But uh, you've, the, if you remember why you've heard of James Stockdale, he's Ross Perot's running mate when Ross Perot runs for, for president in 92 or whatever. And Dennis Miller has this great line. So, so when, when Stockdale runs for vice president, he's, he does the debate and he doesn't do really well in the debate. He's not a particularly photogenic guy. He kind of makes some gaffes here or there. And Dennis Miller talks about how sad it is to go to your point about politics. Um, He's like, look, this guy was the first guy into Vietnam, the last guy out of Vietnam. He was courageous and sensitive and brilliant and wise and all these things. And he's like, but he committed the one unpardonable sin of of our times, which is that he was bad on television. And so the, the point is that I think that true stoic greatness doesn't translate as well. So we don't hear about it as much. But to me, that's that's true human greatness. Jesus, dude. Yes. Like that is 
I'm, I now need to like really lean into reading about him. So I read Long Walk to Freedom, Nelson Mandela's book. I've yeah. talked about it many, many times. And it was it's one of those moments where I, I can tell you right now, and this makes me sad. Um, I'm not as hardcore as Nelson Mandela. I'm definitely not as hardcore as James Stockdale. Like that's I, I aspire to be. And I'm not saying I, I forever accept that. But I know if I were uh, captured right now by somebody, I don't think that I would be able to to smash my head into the glass, slice my wrists just so that they'll leave other people alone. I'd heard the story about beating himself with the chair before. Um, but man, when you realize it as sort of a pattern of behavior that this guy was just that fucking hardcore, like, and that is a hardcore that I aspire to. That to me really, like when you tell me a story about him and then you tell me a story about somebody that has business success, like I am infinitely more moved right. by, and I, I consider it much harder. Like if you said, hey, you've got two people as close to just sort of middle of the road as, as you're ever going to get, you've got to make one into a great business leader and or you have to make one into, you know, somebody that can be that hardcore in a prison camp. I Give me the business guy. I'll, I'll try to make somebody into a business person right. all day. Like that shit is so much easier than having just the internal fortitude to to suffer like that. Well, and and in case people think I'm just some like, you know, crazy leftist, which I'm not. I mean, I live on a ranch in Texas, so uh, that should give you some some sense of it. But like John McCain is in that same prison camp as as Stockdale. And 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 because he because we saw McCain as a modern day politician, we forgot that he was also the embodiment of human greatness in that camp. Like people don't understand. So so John McCain is shot down, also goes into the prison camp. But his father was the theater commander for the Navy in the Vietnam War. So imagine if you're a, a prisoner of war uh, camp and you get the son of the guy who's leading the war. Like imagine what you would do. And so so First off, you can imagine they they subject him to all sorts of torture and, and horrible things, and then they re, then they decide a different track, and they say um, you're free to go home. They they tell John McCain he can leave, and now uh, the the armed forces have a very strict protocol about prisoner of war, and it's it's uh, uh, first one in, first one out. So like uh, there's no special treatment for rank or for fame or, you know, just because one guy has kids doesn't mean he gets to go home before the guy that's been there longest, right? And so they go to McCain and they say, you can go home. And and they're, they're trying to let him go home to hammer in the point that, uh, that, that Vietnam was a, was a rich man's war, but a poor man's fight. They wanted to embarrass the, the United States by saying like, look, they let this the the general's son go home because you know th that's all they really care about, and so so they give McCain a chance to go home, and and he says no, so so he stayed for seven years oh, in a POW camp where he was tortured, where he permanently loses the use of his arm, uh, where where he undergoes all sorts of torture that gives him PTSD and you know. Uh, that he very easily could have died from, that he doesn't see his family. He did that volun in a sense voluntarily mm. because he would not exempt himself from the rules or take special treatment because that special treatment would come at the expense of someone else. 
And so again, when, when and, and as it happens, John McCain wrote a book called Character is Destiny. The point is only someone of incredibly strong character could be able to go, you're giving me a get out of jail free card, literally, and I'm not going to do it because that's unfair to other people. And so again, to me, that's what greatness is. And it, it's, it, I, I get really inspired talking about it. And then you, as you, you, as you said, you have to have the humility to go like, wow, I just, I don't think I could do that. I don't, I don't think I'm there yet. But to me, that's the kind of greatness that we should be aspiring to just as much is, if not more of, I would love to sell a company for a hundred million dollars. Do you know what I mean? Like we, yeah. we, we celebrate almost the easier superficial successes and then these other things, you know, we just we just don't even talk about. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation, and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Ooh, man, that is interesting. Why we don't talk about it. So the preferred indifference thing is is why, like, the reason I tell people, no matter how many billionaires commit suicide, there is a reason that people will continue to pursue money because money has, it actually lets you do something. So it is a great yeah. facilitator. It has tremendous value. Now, it doesn't have the value that people think it has, which is that it will make you feel differently about yourself because you've obtained it. Um, you know, and, and part of the reason that rich kids end up so sort of emotionally, um, in a dark place is that you've been given something that you didn't have to work for. And there are just innate psychological ramifications of that. In fact, one thing I wanted to talk about is like, what is human nature? And I would say the, the doing hard things to achieve something that matters. So self-worth to me is predicated on doing something you believe is worthy. And if you don't do something you believe is worthy, you will never have self-worth. Nobody can love you to self-worth. You can never earn your way to self-worth financially. You, you can only earn your way to self-worth by doing something that you think is worthy, which almost always is born out of doing some really hard shit. And mm -hmm. so that like, that idea of this is what we should be aspiring towards. I'm, I'm with you a thousand percent because it lines up more than any other kind of success. It lines up with human nature, with what you have an intrinsic program to value. Now, the question is, why don't we talk about it? And I'm going to guess part of the reason that we don't talk about it is it isn't sexy. It's making you look at something that's hard and gnarly. And I think like me, I, if I look at that, I come up wanting. I come up wishing I were that badass. I come up having to confront that I'm not that badass yet. And that is probably deeply uncomfortable. Do you think there's something else at play as to why we don't celebrate that? Yeah, I, I think I think the big reason is that it's it's 
sincere and it's it feels a little cheesy and a little lame to to be like uh, I, I was just writing about this there's this great uh doris kearns goodwin who who uh biographized the theodore roosevelt she says you know uh theodore roosevelt was the kind of kid that grew up reading books about you know the great men of history and decided he would be just like them and when she says that, I detect a little bit of a sneer, like a little bit of a, some condescension. Do you know what I mean? Like it's like it's like believing in fairy tales. Right. And and so I think we've we're a society that's that's ironic. You know, we're a society that's sarcastic and cynical and we're not a society that like the ancient uh, unlike the ancients that celebrates those heroes, right? Like even now when we look at history and, and look, I agree, there are things in history that need to be pointed out, uh, inescapable facts and tragedies and, and, and inexcusable occurrences. But we look at history primarily today to talk about how shitty everyone was, that this person was a racist, this person was a slave owner, you know, this person, you know, didn't take care of their workers. And, you know, we, we, we look through history almost exclusively to judge the past by the present and, and, and to almost tell ourselves this narrative about how crappy we've been to each other for a long time. And it didn't always used to be that way. I mean, people people recited the Odyssey because Odysseus is the hero. Right. And they and they and they they told the, the stories of the 300 Spartans and and all they, they told themselves these stories because um, that's just that that's how they passed on these lessons to the next generation. And I mean, I see all the superheroes behind you, but it's like we now own like superheroes are the only characters in art or entertainment that are heroic. You know what I mean? Everyone else is is your Don Drapers or your, you know, everyone else is this sort of twisted, dark, bad, brooding, you know, antihero. We, I think we've lost the ability to be like, this is what greatness looks like. This is what every man like just because the heroes were all male in the past doesn't mean that that men and women can't be can't aspire to be like Churchill during the Second World War. Just because Churchill was also wrong about India, about women's rights, you know, about all sorts of other things doesn't mean that he wasn't great in that moment, you know, the, the Vietnam War was a war that probably never should have been fought. But that doesn't mean that Stockdale and McCain weren't great in the instance that they in the moment that they found themselves in. So to me, a big part of it is we're just so damn cynical that we don't talk about heroes and we don't talk about greatness. And then we wonder why people don't have it. Yeah. Man, that that is, I think, a very um, decisive, very insightful breakdown of why we look away from that. Um, That's what I try to do in my books. But like what I what inspire what gets me excited is writing stories about these people. I feel like I get to have a conversation with them and I get to live in their in that moment of greatness a little bit. And and I'm not saying I'm ever going to be in a situation like they are, but it does help me. You know, if I'm deciding between this or that, am I going to say something, you know, go to your point earlier, am I going to keep my mouth shut for business reasons, whatever it is, th these examples, you know, forged in much more severe circumstances help you go, 
like I was I was writing about this this morning, like there's this Anne Frank quote about hope and courage. And I was just like, if this little girl could be courageous living in an attic, hiding out from the Nazis who in a matter of months are going to break in and murder her. That's what happens if she can have hope. What fucking excuse do I have to be jaded and cynical because, you know, I think uh, I think the world is going to pieces. Do you know what I mean? I think we draw these examples really do make a difference if you let them. Yeah. Cynicism is something I didn't realize was an actual school of thought. And I want to cover that in a minute. Um, don't let me forget. Uh, I'll write it but, down. Thank you. But there is another idea. When you were talking, you talk about, you know, um, one that we're trying to, there's almost like this desire to erase history, which I don't fully, I, I can articulate to you the motives that people are using, but I don't understand the emotional impulse that people have. And I just haven't thought enough about it, but seems very unwise. Um, you I've either heard you say or you quoted in the book, I, I can no longer remember which, um, this notion of, I think it was Seneca or one of the Stoic philosophers sure. says, you know, I will quote a sentence from a bad writer if he has something profound to say. Um, and I think that, that that is very wise. Like instead of looking for reasons to rule people out, look for do they have some nugget of wisdom um, that you can glean that will actually help you with something. Um, but then you also said something about... Um, you know, most of the heroes are men. Uh, have you read um, Solzhenitsyn's book, The Gulag Archipelago? Uh-huh. Dude, he says something in there. Something tells me that um, if you dive into that period of history in Russia, that y what may come to the forefront is a certain thing that women have that I find really fascinating, which he said that the people who ended up dying for their beliefs like that wouldn't just finally hit a point where they'd be like, yes, fine. Like I, I denounce them and, and yeah. they're full of shit. He was like the only people that would just keep going and going and going saying, no, I will not. I will not. I will not until they're dead was women. And there was this sense of like, there, there is a, and look, these are distributions. So of course there are going to be guys that are willing to do that. But like, as you go to the extremes and you start looking at, you know, in these crazy scenarios, it just like most of the violent offenders in prison are men does not mean that there aren't violent female offenders. Sure. It just means as you look at overlapping graphs, overlapping graphs, as you get to the extremes, then you get sort of that tail. So anyway, that my gut is there's a, 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 a thing that happens around like, I won't relent. I won't give up. I won't something that women have. And I see it in my wife. So it's one of those things where I'm like, my wife actually like, I think I'm pretty fucking hardcore, but there is some band of thing where like my wife just leaves me in awe of like where she just isn't going to back down. Like it's, it's pretty inspiring. No, it's, it's super inspiring. And, and so one of the things that I was really intent on in the book is that this, I would not let the book be 100% men. It's, it's about ancient Stoics. So of course, the vast majority of the characters are men. That's, that's, that's not because men are superior. It's that only men were allowed in many cases to do a lot of these things. But Cato, who's one of the sort of towering Stoics, decides to teach his daughter philosophy, which is, you know, a pretty transgressive thing at the turn of the of the of the millennium. And and so she becomes just as stoic as he is. And and so for people who are familiar with the story of the assassination of Julius Caesar, you know, you think Brutus, uh, you know, you think the senators, you don't realize that actually uh, Brutus's wife is Portia, Cato's daughter, and that she was the steel backbone behind the whole thing. 
so so Brutus is kind of thinking about, you know, he's thinking he, he knows, you know, Caesar's a tyrant. He's destroyed the Republic. He's a dictator. He knows he wants to do something and he's thinking about it. And his wife, just like my wife and I'm sure your wife, she just senses that something is going on that he's not telling her. And she realizes that he's probably has a secret that he's afraid if she knows, uh, uh, not that she'll tell, but that it, in Rome, uh, if there was a conspiracy, uh, anyone who was suspected to be involved would be subjected to extreme torture to, uh, to confess. And so she realizes that what he doubts is her ability to withstand torture, which of course is absurd because anyone uh, who has uh, seen a woman go through childbirth understands that women are like 500 times stronger than men and can endure like like if men gave birth every man would get an epidural like two <laughs> seconds after you walk into the hospital do you know what i mean like no man would ever give birth naturally uh it would it would not even be a question right um so so anyways she realizes that he doubts her and so what she does and she realizes like actually i don't know how I would stand up under torture. So she stabs herself in the leg with a knife and then uh, with a pen knife. And then she says, I'm gonna see how long I can just take the pain. And so she does this, She hours and hours, she just sits there and endures like a gaping leg wound. And then when her husband comes home, she call, she's like, look at this. You know, I, she's like, if you think, she's like, is it not enough that I'm Cato's daughter? Is it not enough that I'm your wife? Is it not enough that I have proven to you that I can withstand the worst pain imaginable that you would not tell me? And and he does tell, he, not only does he tell her, but in Shakespeare's play about it, you know, he says something like, now I have to live up to my wife's courage. You know, like he has to, he realizes that, you know, she's stronger than he is. And so, you know, we have uh, like, we have this sense of like history being all these big, you know, strong men doing this, this and this. And in a way, the more I think about it, it's actually it's the women who were more stoic because not only did they endure most of the same adversity and difficulty and loss, but uh, but they didn't demand any credit or attention. You know, like, you know what I mean? Like to me, the most stoic thing of all is just to <clears throat> is to quietly endure, you know, pain and difficulty and not let anyone see you sweat, you know. And, and so there I think there's this element where we've we've misunderstood the absence of women from a lot of the historical events. Like, sure, uh, you know, pioneers crossed, you know, the American West, but the whole family, it was a whole family affair. You know what I mean? And just because uh, we've heard the names of this man or, you know, th this this other one, it doesn't mean that there wasn't someone else sitting in the wagon right next to him. Dude, we're, we're about to go into a really um, interesting time. We're already in the thick of it. So growing up with the notion of behind every great man is a great woman and that that was to be celebrated and that there wasn't a big push, you know, for women to step out front. But now there is right now. There's yep. the I bought it myself and I control my own destiny. And I am very curious to see what happens to men as that dynamic begins to break down, because I will speak from my own experience that I would not be the man that I am today without Lisa. And I say that not in like somebody wants to say something nice about their wife. I say it in that my wife was like, yo, motherfucker, you said you were going to do something with your life. 
hop to it and not in a right. mean way. And she always gets very defensive when I, I categorize sure. it like that. Um, but she was obviously loving and warm and that was what drew me to her, but she didn't fuck around. And so I'll give you, I'll give you the lamest example ever. There was a moment where I was eating less than I'd ever eaten in my life and I was getting fat. And I was very frustrated because this was a low fat thing. So I cut fat out and of course you replace it with sugar. And so, and that was like all the hype and the craze. And that's what everybody said you should be doing. And so I'm now going in the wrong direction. I come from a morbidly obese family. And so I'm like getting real paranoid that I'm, you know, headed in a bad direction. And I'm like, fuck, my genetics have just given up. Like this is my fate, but I was really unhappy about it. I discovered low carb and I'm like, oh, maybe this is the answer. I just need to cut out carbs. Now, for anybody that's gone from a low fat, high sugar diet to a, what I did was basically high protein, low fat, no sugar. It is brutal. You go through a period of headaches and like all this stuff. And I went to my wife one day and I was angry about the fact that this was such a hard transition. And I was like, if I had a cookie, I would just feel better. And she was basically like, it is the way it is. So you're going to keep whining yeah. about it? Or are you going to see this route? You said you wanted to do it. What do you want me to do right now? You want me to be like boohoo and cry with you? Or are you going to recognize on the other side of this headache is the thing that you seek? Now, my wife did that a thousand different times. All these moments of weakness where she helped me become the person that I wanted to become, that I professed I was attempting to become, but it was, she would kick me in the ass when what I needed was a kick in the ass. And so- sure. She and I went through this period where she was finding her greatness through me by helping me become the person that I wanted to be. She didn't have any interest in going out into the world to do that. She thought she was going to be a mother and like she was good with that and she was going to pursue her art, but she wasn't trying to, you know, sort of be out in the world and be an entrepreneur. Sure. But then we flip and now... 10 years into our marriage, she decides she actually does want to become an entrepreneur. She does want to step forward. She does want to go on that journey um, by herself. And I think, fuck, what if she had been running her own race when I was trying to become something and I didn't have somebody to that that I wanted to sleep with, quite frankly, that I had all this like, you know, I had every reason you can imagine to want her to find me powerful and attractive and sexy. And so, fuck, you better do the work to become someone worthy of her attraction. And that was a huge thing for me. And now if women aren't playing that role, and I'm not saying that they should have to, like I told my wife, I am here to help make sure you have whatever life you want. I will give whatever up I need to to make sure that you can become the person you want to become. But I think there are going to be consequences. I think there will be consequences, but in, in a sense, like, I think it just means it's it's more on the individual. So, like, this is something I've never really understood by uh, a, a lot of these, like, you get these sort of alt-righty figures who are like, you know, like, uh, you know, now there's women in the workplace and, and then they're, they're, there's all these different races and it's not fair. And it's like, dude. Do people actually you know, say that shit? Well, yeah. What, what, what I'm saying, you get what you, what I think you're seeing politically is a resentment like it's like when you're used to what they say is like uh, when you're used to privilege, equality feels like a punishment. Right. <laughs> it feels like you're losing something. Right. And you don't real like it, think of like go go back 50 years. If you're a white person in this country, you have 15 to 30 percent less. Uh, let's just say 15 to 50 percent less competition. Right. It's like if women are kept out of certain industries or if black people are kept out of certain industries or, if, you know, di di 
there's less competition. Like, why is college harder to get into now? It's because it's a global competition now. People from China are trying to get into Harvard, too. And their smart kids might be smarter than you. Right. And and uh, and and uh, and so, so what what we're existing in now is a world of a lot more competition. Right. Like where, where everyone has an equal shot. Suddenly the meritocracy is not so fun because if you don't have what it takes, you don't have what it takes. Right. And so when I see people, you know, you, you see some someone every once in a while express one of these kind of regressive beliefs. And, and what I see in those beliefs is fear, a fear of not being able to cut it. Right. Like like, um, you know, th those those protesters at Chancellorsville or whatever who were like uh, Charlottesville who were like, they will not replace us. I'm not worried about getting fucking replaced because I know I can cut it. And if you tell me that, hey, this was OK 20 years ago and that was the rules everyone was playing by. Um, and now the rules are this. I'm going to adjust. You know what I mean? Like all the like you, you hear these old guys who are like, you used to be able to tell a woman this or you used to be able to make these kind of jokes at the office. And now you can't. It's like. You you are the one that sounds like a little bitch. You know what I mean? Like you are the one that sounds like you cannot adjust to changing realities or changing like the, like I think I guess what I'm saying is what I'm not afraid of. And I think what is at the core of a lot of uh, people's fears is a fear of change. And the reality is, sure, yeah, society is changing. The, the, the women used to not have a lot of options and now they have a lot of options and that changes things. And that's going to require people, I think, to adjust. And there there's going to be pros and cons, I'm sure. But I think if you really have what it takes, you're going to find a way to thrive in this environment. Just it's like it's like they change the rules in football. Uh, do you quit or do you go, oh, OK, this is what a pass interference looks like now. And uh, I'm not going to do that when I'm defending a, a wide receiver. Like to me, it's not that complicated. But I think, again, what stoicism is, is about, look, I don't control that. So I accept it. I come to terms with it. And by the way, in, in this case, obviously very much agree with it. But it's like I I don't control it. I'm going to accept it. I'm going to make the most of it because that's what our job in life is to do. All right. You want to you ready to take this somewhere dangerous? All right. Let's do it. I, that once we I just were. Uh, we just were somewhere pretty dangerous. So oh, I'm, no, I'm now, now. now we we walked up next to the third rail. Now we're going to like grab a okay. hold of it and lick it a little. Um, right. So the everything that you just said, I'm totally on board with. And I think that you're right. It's fear of change. It's people don't think that they can cut it. Um, it's also they have the wrong value system, in my opinion, because they value themselves for being something for ranking in a certain sure. order instead of sincerely pursuing something. Um, because, look, I don't if I were going to play basketball, I would say my pursuit is to be the greatest of all time. And I'm pretty sure that physically I just don't have what it's like. You're you're only able to build on something. Right. So my favorite quote, yeah. uh, you're not able to make a racehorse out of a pig, but you can make a really fast pig. So but if I'm trying to become a really fast pig, I, I think only that I'm going to become the greatest racehorse of all time. And I know in that effort, I will probably top sure. out at a fast pig. So you've got that idea. And I think people should think more like that and not value themselves for whether or not they become the greatest. And then also to further complicate issues, if I felt that I was the best at something and somebody whispered in my ear, you're only the best at this because you're not letting some people play, all yeah. the emotional wind that I felt from being good would evaporate. And so to me, the goal of life is how you feel about yourself when you're by yourself. So even if I'm in the number one position, but everybody knows there's somebody better that I'm just not letting play, I wouldn't feel good about that. So what the fuck this is the point? Right. All right. So the real dangerous thing is as we look at 
um, okay, all these new people are coming into the space and we should be giving everybody equal opportunity. I hear people saying basically out, they don't use these words, but this is definitely the sentiment, which is, you know, there's calls for white men to give up their jobs. So a woman or a person of color can come in and have that opportunity. And that's where I'm like, fuck that. Like one thing I used to say in business was never, ever, ever, ever say slow down so I can lead. So I love it. Bring every motherfucker into this game. Let's make sure everybody has equal opportunity, meaning that you don't hobble them with a fucking shit education. Like, get these motherfuckers. Literally, the thing I'm focused on is making sure, no matter where you live, that your zip code does not determine your success. So I am somebody putting my money where my fucking mouth is about making sure everybody steps to that starting line, ready to fucking rock. Nobody's been hobbled. So... But my thing is, I love that shit. I look around. Yeah, I'm so fucking excited. You guys are all here. We're going to go fucking hard for this cake. But I'm going to go hard too. And if you can beat me, fuck yeah. I'm never going to throw a banana peel and try to slip you up. And if I come in last, I come in last. Like, cool. I will then flip my mind in a very stoic fashion to being like, at least I get to live in a world with all these rad fucking people. So I'm totally cool with that. But I'm going to play fucking hard. And I would want everybody else to be in like a fun way. Like we're going for this. Right. No, no, it, I, I agree. Look, uh, Chrysippus is one of the early Stoics and, and one of the, the ones who we know the most about his athletic pursuits. So he's a, he's a distance runner, but they, he, he ran in this uh, insane distance race. They would do, it was a stadia, I think the, the distance was called the stadia, and, you know, which is, I don't know, it was like 200 yards or 300 yards. They would do like a five or six mile race of, 300 yard wind sprints basically so they'd run to one in touch back like this so imagine running five miles of wind sprints it'd be an incredible endurance sport and you're doing it with other athletes right and so so um again what i love about the stoics is that they weren't these like guys in robes just kicking around ideas they they were runners and wrestlers and generals and 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 politicians and so they, they knew about competition they knew about fighting and and he talked he's like look when you're in a race, you want to do everything you desperately want to win and you're willing to do anything and everything to win. And it's honorable to do that in so far as you never negatively impact someone else unfairly. So he calls it they, they call this the no shoving principle. So you could say whatever you want to psych someone out. You could engage in some you know, some strategy where you're you're sandbagging at first and then you put on the gas or, you know, you could do whatever it takes to win, but you can't push someone over. Right. And I think, um, look, the reality is we've had a system for a long time that whether we knew it or not, whether you and I engaged in it or not, was predicated on people being pushed over. Like I I've talked about this on another podcast. It was like my my grandmother uh, grew my yeah my grandmother, and my father's side grew up in Arkansas. So, you know, she went to high school, then she went to college. Uh, great. But and, and I met her and, you know, I, we, my parents would talk about her. She died when I was very young. But it's like never did anyone say, did, ever, did anyone in my family go, you know, grandma's high school was segregated. Black people were not allowed to go to the high school. And, they, and if they'd applied to go, to, if they'd attempted to uh, attend uh, college with her, they would have been murdered. Right. Like when you watch the, 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 the video of those first African-Americans trying to go to college in the South in, in the 1960s. Well, my grandmother went to college in the 40s. So like never did this come up. So I think one of the things we've not done a good job wrapping our head around 
is just how real and how recent the shoving in the system was, right? So I, I agree. I think it should be an even playing field. Everyone should compete uh, and, and you know, the, the, let, let, the, let the winner uh, be the winner. It's, it's a little hard, obviously, to go, hey, I'm not shoving anyone. Uh, it's not fair. You know, it's not fair for you to say I have an unfair advantage when your ancestors have been shoving every single person up until, you know, like 10 minutes ago. And then you're like, well, it's a totally fair thing. So I think we can I, I think it's perfectly. And again, let's talk about moderation. I think it's perfectly reasonable to go like, hey, the system's been unfair for a long time. We have to acknowledge that here are the steps we're taking to rectify or make amends for some of the abuses of the past. And here's what we're going to do to ensure an even and level playing field going forward. May the best man, woman, race, whatever win. And, and so I think I don't think those are mutually exclusive points, but people try to simplify it and make make sure that it is. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I had a guy named Vusi Tempekweo on the show, um, South African black guy and grew up in apartheid and yeah. talking about like, all right, motherfuckers, now what? Like now there is no apartheid and you ultimately stop looking to the system to like, you know, equal everything out so that everybody's equal. He was like, you now are able to enter this race, become a badass. Like that is your only option. And my thing is, goal, right? You have this goal of you want everybody. Well, I'll say I have a goal where I want everybody to have equal opportunity. Don't fuck up their education, no shoving, all that shit. But now I expect these motherfuckers to roll up and shine because I know they can. And that's my thing. Like when I see people, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. They want to like help everybody, molly coddle, all that, and never make demands. Like if you're going to help somebody, you give them the bowl of soup, you fucking break it, you cover them in the soup and you make them march through town so that they get fucking tough. So they know like, how to proceed and get better and do their thing. And that, because ultimately that is what a human must do is go inward, find the internal fortitude, build the skill set so they can go and fucking dominate. Now, it is always, this is why you need that friction. There's always the, but some people are not going to thrive. And what the fuck do you do with that? And I would say you want systems that take care of them and you don't want to leave people um, dying in the streets. But at the same time, you don't want to try to get a quality of outcome, which becomes tyrannical, basically. Sure. Instantly. No, I mean, I think there's an expression, I forget who said it, but they, they sort of called it the soft bigotry of low expectations. And I, I think that's that's certainly real. Um, at the same time, uh, you, when you look at the numbers and you go, OK, why is the uh, why does the average black family have a lower, you know, net worth than an average white family? Well, a lot of these things are hereditary and they're built up over generations. So you when you, you say know, hereditary, that, what do you mean? That makes me think what, what I'm saying is that, you know, my father uh, started at a level higher up that like uh, if you look at black people in the United States, the vast majority of African-Americans would have started, you know, as equal citizens, not even after the Civil War but like legally could not vote until 1965, right? So the idea that, the, that, that uh, like, um, the, to, to go to this point, uh, Ruby Bridges, who was the, the, in that famous painting and photograph, the first uh, uh, black little girl to go to school, and I forget what state, she's like 65 right now. Do you know what I mean? Like, like could not go to school, a regular elementary school, you know, 
properly budgeted, with good teachers, working systems. She's in her 60s, right? So this is all very, very recent. And so the point is, obviously, like what what advantages she inherited financially and just as far as like my parents went to college, their parents went to college. My I don't know if my great grandparents went to college, but the point is, here's a great example. My grandfather uh, fought in World War Two and came home and got access to uh, the GI Bill to go to college. And he got access to to FHA loans and all sorts of things that the same black veterans in the same war did not get. So if you were to compare me, his grandson, to a random person uh, of a different race in a different city with very similar, uh, you know, arc, one would have a greater financial and cultural advantage than the other. Right. So my point is those things exist. And you can't deny that they don't exist and you can't pretend that it's a perfectly even playing field. So so I think you can you can uh, stipulate all that and then say still. The situation is the situation. The Stoics would say you don't control what's happened, but you control what you're going to do about it. It wasn't fair that Jackie Robinson was up against all these other advantages, uh, disadvantages as a as a player. I think Jackie Robinson was hit by like 60 pitches, for instance, in his major league career. But he still chose to comport himself with self-control and dignity. And most of all, he fucking shoved it in their faces by being one of the greatest baseball players of all time. So I, I think it, it's possible to, again, hold two semi-contradictory ideas at, in your head at the same time which is that the system has been uh, systematically unfair for generations, and that's created real deficits and disadvantages. And each of us wakes up today in the world, and we're forced to figure out how to make the most of the situation. And and I think it's important to also stipulate race and uh, gender are not the only disadvantages that people get in life. Like, you were saying you come from a family of, uh, of of obese people. That was a real obstacle that you not only had to struggle with, but, you know, learned patterns and and behaviors from that. You're we're all dealing with shit. And I think at the core of it, we have to decide, are we going to be defined by it or are we going to transcend it and be made better for what we've what we've you know experienced? Yeah, I like what you're saying there in that. I was once asked by, I was doing a talk at Google and a black guy asked me, um, Hey Tom, do you think that things are hard? And this is years ago. Do you think that things are harder for me because I'm African-American? And I said, almost certainly. Yes. Like even just, just look at the math of the situation. So you live in, in a majority white country and the, one of the imperatives of the human mind is to seek out um, things to categorize as us and them. One of the most obvious and apparent is just physical appearance. And so right. you, it's what I call the school of fish phenomena. You always see fish with the same type of fish, right? And they swim in all these yeah. um, schools and, and that's just that. So inevitably you're going to have the sort of soft, like, oh, it is immediately apparent just on like a glance. I don't know you or anything about you. And so I'll sort of automatically categorize you into you're not like me. Now, it doesn't mean that the person automatically has hatred or anything like that. But that just being in a country where you're not the majority is already going to be difficult. Sure. So my question to him was, and now what? 
So right. you have a system that's working against you, let's just say. Like I'm perfectly willing to say that either for the historical reasons that you very clearly laid out, it's very clear that things are against you. If um, what you inherit from your family matters a lot to the success that you will have in your own life, then you're clearly at a deficit because you don't have to go back very far, like you said, to run into one of your real near ancestors was going to have been completely hobbled. Now, I'll I'll argue that T-shirt to T-shirt in three generations is something to consider in that most, most families are not passing on financial legacy in the way that people think they sure. do. Now, I right. do think they pass on a mindset and the mindset to me becomes far more interesting than the amount of wealth. My parents did not pass on, on any wealth to me, but they made sure that I got educated. So that's big. So to me, like making sure people get educated is critically important. But going back to this question he was asked and I said, yes, for sure, there are things that are working against you, but now what? Now what he can control is he gets to, you know, in the a very stoic, response, he gets to decide how he reacts to that. He can't control the way the world is. It's too multifactorial, but he can control how he responds. And so to me, like that, that is a moment of excitement. It's a moment of excitement to me that no matter how much Kobe Bryant said, booze don't block dunks. So I'll say racism doesn't block success, right? You can get so good. Look at Booker T. Washington, who has become, and I don't understand this. I, I really don't. And maybe there's an argument that I'm just ignorant to, but I think it was Obama that said, like, don't put me in that Booker T. Washington camp of, like, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. But Booker T. Washington was a fucking slave and ended up building a school that still lives on today. That's fucking amazing. And so if it couldn't stop him, like, there, there just is it. The human ability to change and grow can reach a level where you are so good at something that people can't stop you even when they want to. Now, I'm I'm talking in a world where you're not getting shot or lynched or like all that shit is real. I'm not trying to diminish any of that. I'm just looking at today, we've gotten from a legislative standpoint, I am unaware of any racist laws. They may be there. And again, maybe this is ignorance, but like it feels like from a legislative standpoint, we've said, okay, we're, we now have a, 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 sort of basin in which to play that is colorblind, possibly even now beginning to spill in the opposite direction. You have been historically hobbled, depending on how much that feeds into your abilities right now today, but you still get to own how you come at the world. And to me, like that should be exciting. Like people should be like, okay, cool. It may be harder for me, but it is still possible for me to do rad shit. I'm, I'm fascinated by Booker T. Washington. I have his, uh, right here. I have uh, Up From Slavery right here. It's one of my favorite books. He's a hero of mine. Uh, but the knock against Booker T. Washington is, and it's an interesting one. So Booker T. Washington, this is this is uh, early 1900s, late 1800s, early 1900s. It's sort of post-Reconstruction. He's basically saying, look, um, the way, f-, he's basically saying like, look, the world is so racist and so fucked up that the only the only way uh, that he's basically saying, look, black people have to earn their respect and their rights. Right. And so that the knock, if you look back on it, you're sort of going, well, you were accepting a status quo that that perhaps legislatively should have never existed. Right. He's basically saying, like, look, 
he's like, black people, we don't need to worry about education, uh, although obviously he did the Tuskegee Institute. But he's saying we need to we need to focus on like learning how to farm and learning how to build things, because that's the only way we can prove our worth to society, which I understand was a very pragmatic take. The argument is just sort of like, um, well, you should have never had to be in that position to begin with. Right. And this, so this is like the most stoic moment ever. Agreed. And I won't right. even say like, maybe it never should have been. It never should have been. It's fucking grotesque. It's one of the gnarliest things to look back on is like how gross humans can be with the, like how long slavery lasted in all cultures. Ah, it's but, mad. So this is, but this is the tension of stoicism. This is one of the knocks, right? So when does your individual acceptance of adversity, difficulty, uh, fucked up status quo become a, uh, resigning your the society's collective agency over that problem so epictetus right a slave he accepts the slavery he he does basically in, in rome you could be you were a slave for 30 years and then you're freed so he does his 30-year bid and comes out but even in epictetus's writing he never questions the institution the institution of slavery none of the stoics really do ever say like they, they sort of go, this is gross. It shouldn't happen. But they they never say slavery is wrong. And if we all come together, we can do something about it. So so the knock on stoicism is that it's it's somehow resigned that the stoics, because we focus like what you're talking about is the individual's response to a fucked up situation. How? Hey, hey, here's all these disadvantages. Uh, and I by, by the way, I just read a book about someone you would love. Uh, a guy named Major Taylor, who was the greatest bicycle racer in American history. He's a black guy in the late 1800s, better than Lance Armstrong, better than Jackie Robinson, better than Jack Johnson, an incredible athlete, um, it, worthy of study. We've sort of forgotten about him. But but the point is, at what point does just, just going, this is the fucked up rig game. I'm going to figure out how to, how to participate in myself, limit our ability to come together as a society to fix an injustice or a change, right? And so what I try to write a lot about is, is understanding that that's not actually what Stoicism is about. There were Stoics who were, who were engaged in, in revolutions in Rome. Cato uh, bands together a bunch of Stoics and tries to resist Julius Caesar. There's a, there's a translator of Epictetus who leads a black regiment in the, in the, in, for the Union cause in the Civil War. Uh, Toussaint Leventure, uh, the, the revolutionary in Haiti who defies Napoleon, uh, is, is, a, is, a, is a black reader of, of Epictetus. But the American founders, Thomas Jefferson and, and George Washington and Benjamin Franklin and John Adams, it was stoicism that inspired these guys to come together and say, we can start a new nation. We can change this. And so I think it's important that like this, the tension is when does an individual resigning themselves to facts out of their control become complicit in the propagation of the status quo when if everyone got together and said, collectively, we have power and could change it. So that's kind of that, I think, is an important tension. It kind of brings us back to where we began. You can't just say hey, this police brutality issue is fucked up and it has all these different causes and no one individual can make a difference. That's that's history proves us wrong. An individual can create change, but an individual has to has to try to make change and obviously has to bring other people on board with them. So, you know, I think 
that that's an important thing that that I think in our this time of cynicism and pessimism that we don't we don't lose sight of. All right. So I have a, a direct idea um, on that. So the here's and this was going back to that guy that had asked me the question at the Google talk. It's exactly what I said to him is some people are called to fight the system. And that's there. And I use called specifically, like there's something in them that compels them that that is the way in their life, the things that light them up, that give them more energy, that make it worth it for them, that they feel called in that way. And I'm very grateful that they exist. And for anybody that feels called to address the the system, amazing. Um, There is another side of that coin, though, and I want people to understand that I very much doubt if you sat down with Booker T. Washington, he's not going to be like, not complicit to this. I look at the problem, the state of the world, and I say, given the things that light me on fire and what I'm capable of doing and how do I think that I can do this is I'm going to, you've got people that are now legally freed, but they don't have a skill set that allows them to control their own lives, to hold dominion over themselves and their family. And by giving them those skills, they can't be resubjugated. And so I could give you a fiery speech about how that is as important, if not more important. In fact, if every single person suddenly became like our our man in the uh, concentration camp, how the fuck would you ever enslave them? It's never going to happen. They're never going to go backwards because there's nothing they won't endure. When you come at them personally, like, fuck it. They, they will just go all the way. There's no point. In, and going back to the Gulag Archipelago, as he said, every time you turned a blind eye, you didn't say something, you didn't stand up for yourself, you thought, let me just keep my head down. That was the problem. It wasn't just the system of like sure. this government came into control. It said nobody said, fuck off. You just snatched Timmy out of his bed in the middle of the fucking night with no explanation. And then you snatch me. But if then Sally's like, you fucking took Tom and Timmy, what the fuck is going on? And then when Sally gets snatched, somebody else speaks up. Suddenly you you realize, oh shit, like we actually can't do this. So you've got people that are called to the to address the system. I'm so grateful they exist. And then you have people that are personal responsibility on that side. And they're like, if you get good enough, people cannot fucking take advantage of you. It's that simple. And if you look at what Jay-Z has done, literally like 20 years ago, maybe more, he realized I have to own the masters to my own music. And so he went on a quest to get it. He ends up getting the masters to his own music. And it's no surprise that he's as freakishly successful as he is because he knows how to think within the system. He doesn't go in and say, oh, I'm going to try to tear down the entire music system. He's not posting tweets of the contract that he has. He just fucking says, oh, okay, cool. The win in the system, I need to own the masters. I'm going to go own the masters. He gets the masters. And to me, it's like, not only does it show other people what you can do, but it puts him in this incredible position of personal power. And my thing is just don't ever leave that chip on the table. If you have an insight into the system, don't leave that chip on the table. Fucking voice it, fight for it, whatever you feel called to do. But don't leave personal responsibility on the table because there's so much power in it. No, I think it's both. And look, I, I'm my as big a fan as I am of Booker T. Washington. I think Frederick Douglass is one of the sort of great badasses of, of all of history. This is a guy who who uh, beats the shit out of his slave master. He escapes from slavery. He becomes one of the great writers of his time, but but ultimately dedicates himself to the eradication of slavery. And so I think this is a, a really important stoic idea, which is the purpose of philosophy, the purpose of the work, the purpose of success is not merely to free yourself, right? Like that that's ultimately a very empty thing to just pile up as many trophies or or wins or 
or, or whatever as possible. Um, you know, Jackie Robinson had this, it's actually on his tombstone. He says, a life is meaningless uh, insofar as its impact on uh, other lives, right? Like the, the meaning of life is the impact that your life has on other people's lives. And so the Stoics, that, that idea of justice was about impact, was about helping others. The Epictetus wasn't just using Stoicism to free himself mentally and physically from slavery, but then he becomes a writer and a teacher. And he not only does he propagate the philosophy all over Rome, but Marcus Aurelius is introduced to uh, Stoicism through the writings of Epictetus, just, by the way, as as Abraham Lincoln's views on slavery are fundamentally changed through his interactions with Frederick Douglass. So like you, it's not just about freeing yourself. It's about making an impact on the world and freeing other people. And there, of course, in our modern world, many ways to do that, whether it's with writings or videos or or it's, you know, creating a nonprofit or maybe it's creating a tech company that you sell for billions of dollars and then you then you use your power influence in some other. There's lots of ways to do it. But I I think it's really important that that the 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 purpose of greatness is not for furthering your just your own your own self. Right. I'm and with you, think- but let's let's look at Jackie Robinson, which I think is a great example. And I admittedly only know what was in the movie. So it's entirely possible. I just yeah. don't understand the realities of it. But in the movie, it's presented that, hey, what I need from you is not somebody that can go out and confront these guys and, you know, shout them down. It's I need somebody that's not going to react. That's just going to be so good at baseball that it becomes undeniable that you belong here. And of course, he does that. And that opens the door. And so his his contribution, at least as I understand it, was through personal greatness by showing people by not reacting by not being violent back or anything like that, by having composure that he's able to break that sort of break the back of the system that would have argued they don't belong or whatever. And just showed if you want the most exciting baseball played by the most incredible people, then you you just have to open this up. And that to me is is what I'm saying is there is a flip side of that, the the coin of solve the problem that has become either passe or people are outright hostile towards it, which is go become a badass, like become a badass motherfucker. And I, I'm not sure if people will um, get the chills the way that I get the chills with what I'm about to quote or if they're going to be like, this is fucking stupid. Um, but going back to Jay-Z, he said, I can't help the poor if I'm one of them. I got rich and gave back to me. That's the win-win. And I thought, like, I get that. Like, that to me is powerful. You're doing something that serves you, which I think is important, but that also serves other people in a larger context. And few people, you know, that I know of in that industry have done a great job of reaching out to other people to help them up. Um, So, I don't know. To me, that's super powerful. Give us. I think I think that's totally right. And and I think you, you can't you can't help other people from a position of powerlessness. Um, at the same time, just achieving power doesn't inherently help other people. It's I think it's both. And so we have these this, again, a tension of obligations to ourselves and our own ambitions and dreams and then to other people. And if you just pursue one, you're probably going to be lopsided and not as effective as if you if you tackle it from both sides. Well said. I hate that this is true, but 
I have to wrap now. I will just say, right. my friend, you are one of the most important contemporary writers on the planet. I am grateful that you do what you do. Lives of the Stoics is amazing. Um, we didn't get to cynicism and the school thereof, but for anybody that reads your book, they will they will learn the story behind all of that. Um, where can people find you, find the book, all that good stuff? No, thanks, man. I love I love talking with you, and it's so much more fun than than other podcasts where you just kick around bullshit. Uh, <laughs> so uh, the book is Lives of the Stoics everywhere. Books are sold, and then if you want an email of Stoicism every day, which I send out totally for free. You can go to dailystoic.com slash email. Amazing. Brother, I enjoy you as a human being. I think you're incredible. Thank you. I, I cherish every moment we get to spend together. Uh, I look forward to sharing space with you again in the future. You got it, man. Awesome. Everybody, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Everybody, thank you so much for listening. And if this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, rate and review us. That helps us build this community. And that is what we are all about right now, building this community as big as we can to help as many people as we can deliver as much value as possible. And you guys rating and reviewing really helps with that. All right, guys, thank you again so much. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.